Hi, it's Crystal Taves. I'm the pastor of women at Northview Community Church. Um, the podcast that you're about to hear was recorded at our Wednesday morning Bible study this spring. Uh, they were the remarkable lives of different Christians who had lived in history. We hope you enjoy them. So this man, Charles Simeon, um, a little bit of an unheard guy. He is from the 1700s, and you might be thinking, another man, or you might be thinking, what can this guy teach me? But I am quite sure that the trials he went through and the characteristics that he had to endure his trials will inspire you, okay? I want to share with you a little bit about how I was first introduced to Charles Simeon. Uh, Prior to being at Northview, I went to Peace Portal Alliance Church, and for an interim time of about a year, I served as the women's leadership coordinator, director kind of person. And a lot of things would come across my desk, invitations to women's conferences, um, retreats, uh, workshops, fun fashion shows, like you name it. All these invitations came across my desk, and I would just put them in the recycling But an invitation for women to be trained through the Simeon Trust Foundation came across my desk, and for some reason I didn't recycle it. It caught my eye, but I had no idea about this organization. So I went and I talked to one of the pastors that had been around for a long time. I said, do you know anything about this Charles Simeon Trust Training Bible Teaching Conference that's happening in Vancouver? And he looked at me and he said, do it. It's so good. So I looked at the dates, and I couldn't do it, but I sent about six of my leaders to go to this conference, and it was actually a fair amount of work for them. They had to prepare quite a bit of homework, they had to teach each other, and then they were critiqued, and then they learned how to teach the Bible. They came back from it, and they said, everybody needs to go to this. They said it was excellent. It was a lot of work, and it was excellent. And then, to be honest, it kind of went to the back of my head, this Simeon Trust guy. Okay, I resigned from my job at Peace Portal because I had three young children at the time. And a few years later, I ended up here. And Crystal was very motivated to have her leaders go through some of the Simeon Trust curriculum if you are a Bible teacher. And so that actually re, uh, reignited some of my interest in this man and why, why we use his curriculum or why we use the curriculum of the Simeon Trust. So a trust, when I say Simeon Trust, that's a foundation. It's a ministry. They still exist today, and it was started years and years ago by the money that, Simeon, that Charles Simeon's brothers, his wealthy brothers, left him. He didn't use it for himself. He used it to print material. He gave it to the poor, and he started a trust so that other preachers could be taught. Um, this trust, like I said, still exists. It was founded in January of 2001, and here is their vision to promote the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world by training up the next generation of biblical expositors, which is a fancy word for teaching what the Bible has to say to people. This vision remains the single conviction holding all of the work of the Charles Simeon Trust today. So I wanted to start with that because that shows the legacy that this man has had. Then I'm going to give you a short biographical sketch of his life We're going to listen to a little bit of some John Piper teaching on this man. 
We'll hear about his trials, and then I'm going to talk through the characteristics that Charles Simeon had. Then you'll have a chance to kind of apply some of those characteristics to your life. And I'll end by kind of explaining the legacy that the Simeon Trust Foundation has had here at Northview. Okay? So instead of rewriting his life after I had read this Charles Simeon book, which um, was very interesting, but a little bit on the dry side. And then I found online an hour and a half of John Piper teaching about Charles Simeon, which, which is actually a little bit more interesting. So if you want to really learn a lot about this man, listen to that hour and a half. But I'm going to start by reading just some biographical information about Charles. And this was actually taken from the Simeon Trust website. Okay, so it's not my own words. I'm not plagiarizing. I'm reading what I found online. All right. Charles Simeon was born September 24th, 1759. Who else was born 1759 that you recently learned about? Wilberforce, that's right. So same time period, okay? Up until college, Charles's life was relatively undistinguished. However, he was born into a very rich, statusy type family. He went to Eton for prep school and there to King's College at Cambridge in 1779. Although he was baptized at a month old, Simeon was not particularly religious. However, both Cambridge and Oxford had mandatory chapel time, and three days after his arrival on campus, he learned he would be expected to receive communion in three weeks, and he had to do that while he was there in order to graduate. Do you remember what Jonathan Edwards went through when he took over his grandfather's church? He said, you need to profess to be a Christian to take communion. And that really brought some uh, tension at that church. So um, Charles Simeon is going to school at a time when communion is just something you do. It doesn't have any uh, heart understanding of what it is that you're participating in. It's just something you do. It's a requirement, okay? Cambridge students were required to receive communion at least three times in order to graduate, and very few took this seriously. Simeon was different. After learning of his upcoming participation in this rite or this activity, uh, Simeon wrote in his diary that, quotes, Satan himself was as fit to attend as I, and that if I must attend to receive Holy Communion, I must prepare for my attendance there. So without a moment's loss of time, he bought The Whole Duty of Man, the only religious book he had ever heard of, not the Bible, interestingly enough. He got The Whole Duty of Man, and he began to read it with great diligence. At the same time, it called into his ways, it called into remembrance his ways, into remembrance his sin. And like I said, he had grown up in a very um, wealthy family. He loved to dress fine. He loved his horses. He loved horse racing. He loved playing cards. And that definitely brought out some sinful behavior in his life that he was reflecting on. Within three weeks, he made himself quite ill with the reading, fasting, and prayer. Although Simeon made his January communion, he continued to feel like he was unfit for the Lord's table. So to fix this, he bought more books, and he tried to understand the meaning of communion. He also went around trying to undo all his former sins. Now, does that work? No. That led to a lot of confusion and frustration for him. He wrote, I was so greatly oppressed with the weight of my sin that I frequently looked upon the dogs with envy. 
He found he had so many sins and despaired ever fully making restitution for them, as we all would, right, if we were just remembering our sins with no solution. During Holy Week, which is Easter, Simeon was reading the Bishop Wilson's book, which was speaking of the Jewish sacrifices of the Old Testament and how the participants would transfer their sin to the animal of their offering. Isn't that interesting? He didn't really understand the Old Testament. He was reading it in somebody else's book about the Old Testament sacrifices and how they represented your sin so the animal would be killed so that you would be holy before God. And Simeon had an epiphany. What? May I transfer all my guilt to another? From that moment on, I sought to lay my sins on the sacred head of Jesus. And on that Wednesday, I began to to have hope and mercy. And on the Thursday, that hope increased. And on Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday, Easter day, I awoke early with the words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. I'm sorry, I get a little emotional when I read that. But it just is such a powerful conviction of the Holy Spirit, not only of his sin, that he looked upon dogs with envy, but that he was... Um, the veil was, was removed from his eyes, and he saw the grace and mercy that Jesus offered. It was beautiful. Now, the 1770s were not a great time to be an evangelical Christian. So when I say evangelical Christian at this time, it was um, kind of opposed with the high church tradition, which is what universities and politics and everything was kind of intertwined with this leveled religiosity right? Which you'd have bishops and uh, clergy and everything had to do with who you were, what family you were born into, the education that you got, and then you'd be slotted into these ministerial roles in different churches. It was not um, normal for someone to have a conversion like Charles Simeon at the time. A few years before Simeon's arrival, and this will give you an insight as to how it was, a, f- a few years after Simeon came to Cambridge, a group of students at Oxford had met on Sunday evenings for prayer and mutual encouragement. But when a professor, uh, when a professor complained of these certain enthusiasts in that society who talked of regeneration, inspiration, and drawing near to God, the students were all expelled. So it was pretty extreme kind of... Um, atmosphere in the universities at this time. Simeon recalls in his memoirs that after his conversion as a freshman, for three years he did not know another Christian. Three years. He went through all of college alone without any other Christian students for support. But despite these obstacles, Simeon kept his faith and was ordained shortly after graduation by the Bishop of Peterborough. Now this just shows God's hand on his life, because although he claimed to be a Christian through the intervention of the Holy Spirit and understanding that Jesus was his Savior, he still went through all the channels, and because of the family he was born into, he wasn't kicked out, so he was actually being prepared for a position that would let him have influence. Does that make sense? In 1782, the bishop appointed Simeon as curate in charge of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, near the university. 
However, this was not a welcome event to the congregation. Like most church congregations at the time, they just wanted a preacher who would entertain and probably read the sermons from other preachers instead of one who seriously exhorted the scriptures to repent and believe as Simeon did. And we will go into some of the trials that he faced here a little bit later. I'll I'll go brief over them, though, here. Church at this time was a little different today. The job of the priest or the curate or the rector was often a patronage position. What that means is exactly what Charles Simeon was given, a patronage position. Kind of like, you're born into this family, you got your education, now you can be in charge of this church. It didn't mean you had to love the church, it didn't even mean you had to preach at the church. You were just supposed to be the name. But that's not how Charles Simeon saw it. He saw it as the church he was supposed to serve. Often it was given in political or social favor. Another important difference was that the pew seats were assigned and people in this society, this high society, could buy a pew row. And they would have a key and they would lock it. And I'll show you an example of this. So you'll see that you kind of think, okay, well, if you're wearing pants, you could just hop over that. But, you know, in those days, you'd have your big fancy dresses, and the men would be perfectly dressed. And some of these walls for the pews would be quite high. So if a pew was locked, you could not get into it, okay? While Simeon was preaching on Sunday mornings, the doors to the pews were locked. The church warden completely agreed with the people who did this. Simeon could not prevent them from doing this. And the congregation refused to listen to his sermons. So they locked their pews, and they didn't allow any visitors to sit in them. Fortunately, Simeon had a few non-pew lock people who uh, didn't actually own a pew, and they would come anyways, and so he bought them some chairs to sit in the aisles, and then the church warden threw them all out the window. So people who wanted to come and hear Simeon preach, they stood in the aisles and they sat on the floor, even though these pews were available for them. One faculty member at the university deliberately moved Greek to Sunday afternoon so that Simeon could not hold, oh, sorry, to Sunday night so he couldn't hold his additional Sunday night lecture or teaching session at the church for the students. There was a lot of... Uh, persecution, actually, for this man. Bricks were hurled through the windows sometimes during his worship services and while he was teaching. One day, Simeon remarked in his journal that he had been quite amazed to have another student walk beside him for a mere 15 minutes. That's how lonely his life had been. Somebody was finally not ashamed of him and on the college campus walked around with him for 15 minutes. But Simeon persevered, and he won over many who held him in contempt. And he won them over by his integrity and his steadfast clutch on the gospel, although he would face opposition until the very end of his life. He served as the preacher at Holy Trinity Church for 50 years. And it was over 10 years before they even unlocked their pews. Can you imagine that kind of adversity towards you, in a calling that you believe God has given you. I don't think we quite have that stick-to-itness. We sometimes think, oh, God's closing that door, and we move on to the next thing, right? Well, Simeon's concern did not stop with his own congregation. On Sunday evenings, he held classes 
teaching people how to construct a good sermon. And that's kind of key in his legacy. He helped Cambridge students who would later become pastors. These students who caught Simeon's vision for evangelical witness became known as Simeonites, or Sims. In later years, Simeon began collecting and publishing his sermon outlines, and he called them Jorge Homiletica, and that has been known to be his most famous collection of him going through the entire word of God, taking sections and making them into teaching outlines. And that's exactly what he did for his students. Simeon died on November 12th, 1836, so he lived 77 years. He died three years after William Wilberforce. By this time, he didn't have to worry about people being ashamed to see him, with over half the university coming to pay their respects for him as a great preacher. And nor did Simeon's ministries end at his death. Like I said before, the Simeon Trust continues to work for evangelical leadership and quality preaching. And Holy Trinity Church still exists today, and it is much more evangelical in nature than high tradition church. So we are going to listen. Uh, Oh, no, before we do that, I'm going to read to you a few excerpts about kind of the motivation that Charles Simeon had in his teaching. And as well, I'll talk to you about uh, his singleness. So, Simeon believed that his task was to let the Bible speak, and in doing so, he was to act as an interpreter. Now, I have to stop here, because as an immersed student, that's what Kendra and I are doing, we're doing our master's, so we take a lot of classes, we learn how to teach the Bible. This is echoed in so much of what we read, so much of what we learn, and even what all of you who attend Northview hear on a Sunday morning. Our pastors, as a goal, our teaching pastors, are, their goal is to let the Bible speak, okay? The deep things of God, which he discovered in his long hours of personal Bible study, were to be expounded in such a way that his hearers, the audience, the congregation, who may not often have read and seldom understood the passages concerned, would be left in no doubt of their meaning and application. That was his vision. I've got the Bible, I need to figure out what God meant by this, and I don't want my people to be confused. Again, he says, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I never wish to find any particular truth in any particular passage. I am willing that every part of God's blessed word should speak exactly what it is intended to speak. Amen. Right? Isn't that what we want to hear from teaching preachers? I want to read that first one again. My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. And um, the women's ministry actually has that as a vision for you as women. That when you go to the Scriptures, you're not thrusting in what you think should be there or what you might think should be there or what you feel should be there, but you are going to the scriptures to read what is there, to observe it, to interpret it, and to apply it to your life. This is a bit of a longer thing that I'm going to read, and it's all about how he actually learned to do this, because he was on his own. Simeon had been preaching for 10 or 12 years, according to his own conviction. So just through the power of the Holy Spirit, I shouldn't say just through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, but without 
uh, the support of community, okay? He came across a piece of work, when I say that, a writing, um, by Jean-Claude, and he was a Frenchman from the Middle Ages, and he wrote something called The Essay on the Composition of a Sermon. What he had to say appealed to Simeon's method, 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 uh, appealed to Simeon's mind. <laughs> and it was in tune with his own ideas. For example, of sermons that did not give the entire sense of the whole text, Claude commented, Preachments of this kind are extremely disgustful. He was very passionate about, passionate about making sure scripture was taught in context. So Simeon proceeded to republish the essay with his own comments, which included as a matter of interest, calling the Frenchman's anti-establishment views as an old farrago. But he so valued his explanation of how sermon composition would be carried out that he bound it up with his own works as an epilogue accompanying over a hundred pages. It is difficult for us to realize today that Claude's suggestion that a sermon should be constructed in three main divisions, and does this sound familiar? An introduction, a main discussion or argument, or three points, and then application at the end, was in fact largely original to that man at that day. So I know we can, we can learn back about prehistoric writing like Aristotle and they organize arguments in certain ways that are similar to sermons, but that sort of thing had not been applied to teaching God's word until Simeon came, well, Simeon was doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. There certainly, I hope and, and do believe that there were preachers who were preaching this way, but not um, of the same influence and they didn't um, at the time have the opportunity to teach others how to do it. It's considered that one-third of every Anglican preacher in England was, at, at this time was taught by Charles Simeon in how to preach and how to teach the Bible. Okay, I could tell you so many more, but I do want to talk about his view on marriage and staying single because he did remain single his entire life, and he kind of reminded me of Jonathan Edwards. He kind of had a resolution about remaining single. Listen to this. Okay, uh, a little bit of background. His entire life when he was serving at Holy Trinity Church, he rented a room at the university. He lived very simply, just a studio room with a bed and a desk. He rented that. I should hate the university above all places as a married man. But the singular way in which I have been called to present my post and its almost incalculable importance, so that's his calling to the church, Forbid that the thought of my now leaving it, therefore I think I shall never marry. He really believed that he couldn't do his job if he was married. Again, in my present situation, I am quite a rich man and almost as free from care as an angel. But if I were to marry, I should instantly become a poor man, reducing my income one half while I doubled my expenditure. Therefore, I think I shall never marry. Again, there are a few married people truly happy in each other in comparison to those who are unhappy, and fewer still who are truly happy in their children. Therefore, I think I shall never marry. It's kind of sad, actually. This apologia, or this statement, written when he was well past 40, actually is a sad commentary on the unhappy state of family life as Simeon saw it in Cambridge in particular, in the houses he used to visit, or in the experience of anxious fathers and mothers who would turn to him in their troubles, or in the lives of many young, many young men from loveless homes who came up to college. 
Simeon wrote, had I married, I must have resigned my fellowship. I must have resigned my, my Holy Trinity Church, and with it, probably my usefulness. I remained, therefore, unmarried for the sake of my Lord's work. I have felt it a great sacrifice, but I have never regretted it. And if, to be more useful as a missionary, you determine on a life of celibacy, God can and will support you, and you will be blessed in the deed. So even though his original statement when he was 40 was a little bit trite at times, saying, oh, it would cost me too much to get married, I wouldn't be happy, he actually comes around and his conclusion for remaining single his whole life is really to honor God. All right, now we will hear about John Piper talking about the trials that Simeon endured. A harsh and self-assertive person by nature, and had much sin in his life to overcome, and he never overcame it completely to the end of his life. Just one story to illustrate his problem. He visited uh, Henry Venn, the elder, uh, in Yelling, which is about 12 miles from Cambridge, and uh, his daughters, Yelling's daughters, when he left, complained to their father about this man's terrible temperament. They just thought it was put-offish to the extreme. And uh, Vin, who loved Simeon very much and saw more there than they did, took them out into the garden and uh, said, Would you pick me one of those peaches? Uh, but it was early summer and the time of peaches was not yet, he says. They asked why he would want the green, unripe fruit. And Ben replied, Well, my dears, it is green now and we must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. And that's true. Uh, in fact, he described his own life of suffering as a growing downward in humility and a growing upward in adoration. He was his own greatest trial, as many of you will say of yourself, I think. Second, his congregation was a great trial to him. October 1782, uh, Charles Simeon was about to leave the university and go home and live with his father. He had graduated, and uh, the vicar of Trinity Church died. And uh, Simeon had often walked by Trinity Church, and his quote was, How should I rejoice if God were to give me that church that I might preach the gospel there and be a herald for him in the university. And lo and behold, Bishop York, under the influence of Simeon's dad, this unbelieving man, appoints Simeon to Trinity Church against the will of the congregation. They did not want him. Mr. Hammond was the associate, and they wanted Mr. Hammond. And when Simeon discovered that, he stepped back, and said to the bishop, I won't, I won't uh, precede Mr. Hammond. And the bishop said, I will not appoint Mr. Hammond even if you quit. And then Simeon felt like it was God's will that he take the role. Now the first thing the congregation did in rebellion against Simeon was not to allow him to preach the Sunday afternoon sermon. It was called the lecture. And they appointed Hammond. For five years they appointed Hammond. Now picture yourself in a church 
where you are not allowed to preach the Sunday evening message, but your assistant, whom they want to be the pastor, is given that sermon. And five years later, when Hammond leaves, they appoint another independent man for seven more years because they don't like their pastor. That's the first thing that happened. Second thing that happened was they locked their pews on Sunday morning. They had these little pew doors, you know, and the church wardens had the keys, and they locked the pews, and they stayed locked for ten years. And he preached to people in the aisles. He set up chairs in the aisles and in the corners, and the church wardens threw them in the, threw them in the yard outside. So he preached to people standing, sitting on the floor and on little chairs for over ten years in his church. The third thing that happened, or let me just mention a general thing in the third place. We mustn't get the impression, though 10 years is an incredible endurance in that kind of situation, we mustn't get the impression that after 10 years, oh good, now it was 40 years of peace. Because after he'd been there for 30 years, in 1812, he writes that the opposition had grown so strong after a period of peace, here's the way he described it. I used to sail in the Pacific. I am now learning to navigate the Red Sea that is full of shoals and rocks. Now, that's after 30 years. And that particular little uh, squall lasted four years. Now, four years doesn't sound like a long time in a 54-year ministry, but put yourself in a four-year stint of opposition and ask your emotionally fragile 20th century soul that is so prone to quit and go off and play in another church, whether you would endure first ten years of opposition and then another four later, and many, many squabbles in between. The third source of trial was the university. He was right there in the university. He was a fellow in the university. And the students held him in derision for years because of his biblical evangelical preaching. There were tumults in the streets. There were physical threats against his life. Uh, when students were converted, they were ostracized in the university. They were called sims and accused of simianism. And uh, one story is that the uh, grade, I mean, one of the students won a, a prize and he was denied the prize academically that he had won because of his, quote, simianism. His peers were ostracizing him. And just to get the feel of what this was like for Simeon, first of all, an example, one of them gave, put his Greek class Sunday evening during Simeon's own service, because Simeon had finally instituted a later Sunday evening service. He put the Greek class there so the students couldn't come. But this particular quote gets at the poignancy of Simeon's own experience. He said, I remember the time that I was quite surprised that a fellow of my own college ventured to walk with me for a quarter of an hour on the grass plot before Clare Hall. And for many years after I began my ministry, I was as a man wondered at by reason of the paucity of those who showed any regard for true religion. So when he was an old man, he thought back with a heartfelt delight that there was a 15-minute time once when a fellow walked with him. 
The fourth source of his trial was his physical weakness. In 1807 now, after 25 years in the ministry, his health broke. I, I couldn't get the details on this, and maybe they didn't even know what it was, but the symptoms were these. His voice would break, and after a sermon, he couldn't talk for a long time. Sometimes he could only whisper. He said, after preaching, I would feel more like one dead than alive and could sometimes scarcely walk across the room. Now, this lasted 13 years. And I want to tell you what happened in the changing of the situation to break this, because it, it shows God's hand upon this man's life and his interpretation of God's chastisements in his own life. 13 years now, he labors under this physical distress, whatever it was. 1819 now, here we are 13 years later, he's on a visit to Scotland. He has pressed on faithfully in the ministry during these 13 years. As he crosses the border into Scotland, he says that it left him. The weakness left him. And here are his words. It was almost as percept I was almost as perceptibly revived in strength as the woman was after she had touched the hem of our Lord's garment. Now, what was his interpretation of this 13-year period? Listen to this. It seemed to me that God was saying, quote, quoting God now, I laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labor at 60 years old. But now you have arrived at the very period. He was 60 now when, when he was healed. Now you have arrived at the very period when you had promised yourself that satisfaction and have determined instead to spend all the rest of your strength for me. To the latest hour of your life, and I have doubled, trebled, and quadrupled your strength that you may execute your desire on a more extended plan. And so for 17 more years, he preached and labored, and he interpreted those 13 years as God's chastisement for a planned retirement at 60 years old. Now, that's enough on the trials, perhaps, to give you a feeling. Uh, it's the kind of thing, these are not, these are not martyr trials in the sense of uh, he, he was about to be killed, although there was one or two times, there were one or two times when that was true. So these are things you can identify with, I hope. These are the kinds of trials that we all will go through. Now, the question is, where did he get the resources to endure? What were the... The, the traits of his spirituality uh, and his uh, interaction with people, and what was the root of those traits? How did Simeon endure? So the next 35, 45 minutes of John's, John Piper's talk is a list of things that he observed through learning about Charles Simeon and that I saw in some of my study too. Um, and he put them together in a really nice list. So I thought we'd use that list and we talk about it. And even though it's for a preacher from the 17 and 1800s, let's think about how these things can be applied to our lives. 
So first, he had a strong sense of the accountability for the souls of his flock. And that's kind of a Christianese term for somebody who is a preacher or a pastor. The souls of your flock are the people that come to your church. But ladies, we can take that for our lives too. Who are the people that you disciple, that you have an opportunity to minister with? Who are the people that you're in relationship for? Because what he did is he had a strong sense of accountability for these people, whether or not they liked him. He didn't choose to shepherd sheep who liked him. He had accountability and loved them even if they didn't like him. Second, his preaching in the midst of conflict was free from a scolding tone. So can you imagine after the um, pews were locked for 10 years and those people finally come back in to hear you preach or to to hear Charles Simeon teach, it would have been pretty easy to chastise them for their behavior over the last 10 years, to call them into repentance. And don't we sometimes want to do this or do it similarly when we know we're with people, maybe it's your children or your grandchildren or friends, and they have done something wrong, and the next time you're with them, you kind of want to teach them a lesson. You just want to point that out a little bit. He was not like this. His preaching was free from a scolding tone. I'd like to think he had a pretty strong understanding that the Holy Spirit would do the convicting. Number three, he was not a rumor tracker. Now, Charles Spurgeon, who you'll learn about in a few weeks, he had a saying, and it went like this. Have one blind eye and one deaf ear. Turn the deaf ear and the blind eye towards rumors. So, Charles Simeon's rule was to never hear, see, or know what if heard, seen, or known would cause bitterness. So what in your life do you see, hear, or know that you have some control over ignoring or not letting it pierce you causes you bitterness? Now, it did not take me long to think of something. Facebook and Instagram. Now, I certainly do like to go on those sites to kind of catch up with friends and see what they're doing in their lives, but probably almost every time I'm on it, there is a twinge of jealousy or judgment or bitterness towards something that I see. So I need to remember to have a deaf ear and a blind eye towards those things and just let it go or get rid of those apps altogether. (laughs) which might be something I end up doing. Um, Piper has learned, he's been a preacher for a long time, a university prof, an author. He's learned to never listen or take heart a story or conversation that begins with. Now, a lot of people are saying, dot, 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 dot. He's like, where are all those people? Let them come and talk to me. Number four, Charles Simeon dealt with opponents in a face-to-face and forthright way. This simply means that instead of engaging in a long back-and-forth correspondence of letters, which was common for the day, he would do his best to try to meet with them face-to-face. And for us, we've probably all heard that it's probably better to phone somebody or set up a meeting than engage in this kind of back-and-forth through email or texting opponents, right? Like people that you are in um, a bit of a 
intense time with is what we're talking about here. He could take a rebuke and learn from it. You heard about his bad temper, right? So there was a time, and John Piper explains this story. For sake of time, I won't let John Piper tell it. I'll tell it a little bit quicker. In those days, you had servants, and uh, Charles Simeon was visiting his friend who had a servant, uh, a servant, and the servant was stoking the fire. And Simeon did not think he was stoking the fire properly. He took the fire poker and hit him across the back with it. Later on, when uh, the same servant was bridling the horse for the horse and carriage, he did it not to Simeon's liking, and Simeon again chastised him, didn't hurt him this time, but said, you fool, like, what are you doing? Simeon's friend saw all of this and wrote a quick letter and put it in this man's, put it in Simeon's pocket so he would get it at home. And he signed it on behalf of the servant saying, John softly, like, how can you preach God's word on a Sunday and act like this? Charles took this to heart. And he signed his letter, Charles, angry and irritable. He realized what he was doing, and it was a constant sore for him, his temper. It was something that kept him humble, and he was rebuked on it several times, and he constantly was trying to um, work on this. It was not something he justified in any way. How do we take rebuke? Do we learn from it, even when it hurts? So Charles was unpeachable in his finances and did not have an evident love for money. Now, we don't have all his financial records. We do know that his entire life, he rented a simple room at the university, like I mentioned. He had a brother who was the head of the Bank of England, a brother who was a lawyer. His family had a lot of money. And when they died, they all gave him their money, and he barely used any of it. He became very endeared to his congregation because of how much he gave to the poor, There was that class system, right? There was the poor and there was the wealthy. And he actually um, opened the doors of his church to the poor and gave a lot of money away. And then he did use some of the income to distribute his writing and travel so that he could teach other preachers how to preach. He did continue to carry his fancy umbrella. That was maybe his one indulgence. He found ways to look at discouraging things, hopefully. And this reminded me of our brother, William Wilberforce. Year after year, trying to get that bill passed. Year after year, Charles served his church with a congregation that didn't like him. And he somehow found a way to look at things, hopefully. Listen to this. He said, in the state of things, this is when the pew doors were locked, in the state of things that I saw no remedy but faith and patience, The passage of scripture which subdued and filled my mind was 2 Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. This is talking about elders and, and, and pastors. It was painful indeed to see much of the church forsaken, except for the aisles, But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the small congregation that did attend, there, on the whole, would be as much good done as if the entire congregation were doubled, and the blessing be half the amount. So this comforted me many times, when without such a thought, I would have sunk under my burden. Isn't that neat? This man truly suffered for the sake of Christ. Can we do that? 
when we know we are suffering because of our beliefs, can we do it faithfully? Can we persevere? Can we do it with hope for the sake of Christ? Now, uh, these eight things you cannot do just by hoping to do them, just by wanting to do them, just by saying you're going to do them. You need to have some roots. And this man had some roots, let me tell you. Massive doses of prayer and Bible reading. Like four in the morning getting up for four hours doses of prayer and Bible reading. He had deep roots. He said he was comforted for every trial and prepared for every duty because of those four hours that he spent in prayer and in Bible reading. His deepest root was what he experienced through his time in God's word. Through it, he grew downward in his humiliation before God and grew upward in the adoration of Christ, year in and year out in his sufferings. Thank you.